book of Mark, and we're in these last few chapters. Last couple of weeks, we've been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now we have Jesus on trial. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And we're going to also be reading some selected verses out of Daniel chapter 7. So if you'd make your way to both of those places, Daniel 7 and Mark chapter 14. Daniel is a person who sees many visions and interprets dreams, and he sees this unusual vision that Jesus actually refers to in Mark 14, which is why we're reading that today. So Daniel 7 and Mark 14, would you stand in honor of reading God's word? Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay down on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by day and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Verse nine and ten. As I looked. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and language languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony there, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up. In the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You may be seated. It says in the Bible that all scripture is God breathed. But not all scripture has the same weightiness to it. When you read certain passages, they just immediately have more of a, an imprint than others. And this is one of those passages that as we get here into this part about Jesus's life and his death, that has quite a bit of substance to it. So I want to just pray together for the work of the Holy Spirit here with with us and through me. Lord, the. Um, immensity. That's even a word. The, the massiveness of what is taking place in these chapters here at the end of Mark is beyond human description. It's, it's beyond even our understanding without the real work of the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this little few verses will throw us into one of two directions. We, we will discount Jesus altogether, or he will be our heading on our compass for the rest of our lives. There's, there's no middle ground at the end of the trial. You stand to give a verdict about who this man is. And no one can see it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a collection of essays that made its way into a book. And the title of the book was God in the Dock. And if you didn't know what the dock meant, like I didn't for a long time, I just thought he's like a ship at a dock. Or I mean, that's kind of the only way I could think about it. But if you think of, of it in a way the British would think about it, the dock is a place in a court where the accused sits. It's like a box. And so when you have a trial, you bring in the person who's being accused and they sit in the dock. And so what's happening in these verses is that humanity has put Jesus Christ in the dock. They're accusing Jesus and they're putting him on trial. So here in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in the dock or God since that is who Jesus says he is, is in the dock. I thought about this question. This question has been sort of rolling through my mind all week. And it's this. Why, why does this happen? Why is it so easy for all of us, myself included, seems so natural to put God on trial? It just seems to be such a, an easy thing for us to do is to stand as judges and put God in the dock. 
Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve had sinned against God. And remember this moment, this great moment of grace. After the sin, what happens? God comes walking back towards his creation. And he has a conversation with Adam first, says, what's what has happened, Adam? And what does Adam say? You remember this? The woman that you gave me is the problem. You see how quickly Adam, as a consequence of his sin, he accuses one of two people. Either it's the woman's fault or maybe more it's God, it's your fault. I mean, I didn't ask for this woman. If if she hadn't been here, I wouldn't be in this condition. So, God, I'm putting you in the dock and I'm saying what's happened here is you're guilty. It's just so natural. If you were to turn to Exodus 17, you might want to just read it later. The Israelites put God in the dock. They come out of the of the Egypt. They're wandering around. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they put God to the test. They're struggling to find water. And they come to Moses and they say, we'd like to put God in the dock. We'd like to put God on trial. He's not running things the way they should be run. And we're the judge and we're going to put God on trial. If disaster strikes, a hurricane, a tsunami, a cancer cell. It's almost the first, most natural question for all of us. Why? God. I need to know. I'm putting you in the dock. And you need to answer me for what's happening in this world. Even if you're a totally secular person. And you take the Lord's name in vain. Even if you don't believe in God. In this one little phrase, you accuse God and you condemn God. You know, that's what's happening when somebody takes the Lord's name in vain. In in one little phrase, they put God in the dock. And then they condemn God. For a bad golf shot. A bad business deal. Somebody cuts in front of them in heavy traffic. And God gets put in the dock. And we so easily put on the robes. And we become the judge of God Almighty. But I'm going to just leave you with that question. Why is it that it's just so easy, whether you're religious or secular, to put God in the dock? This morning, when we read through the text, we're going to sit is as observers in the, this courtroom. Imagine yourself in a courtroom. And we're going to see God on trial here in these verses. And I want to make three observations. First, I want to look at just some of the things that are happening in the trial itself. And then in like a lot of great trials, there's a there's a very tense moment 
And there's a great reversal that happens in this trial. And then finally, I wanted to suggest some possible verdicts that you and I make and one impossible verdict. So we're just going to look at the trial. We're going to see the great reversal that happens here. And then we're all going to be left with having to draw a verdict. And I think there are a couple of verdicts that you could draw that would be reasonable. And I think there's one impossible or unreasonable verdict. First, let's look at the trial. You know, it seems that just the whole background of a trial in a courtroom has some kind of appeal to us. I mean, if you read a John Grisham novel, they're all with a with a trial, a lawyer. There's some kind of background that just becomes a page turner of what's going to happen in the courtroom scene. Lots of TV dramas are are wrapped around courtroom scenes that somehow there's something attractive to justice coming out or or truth being discovered or a sentence or a verdict being meted out in some way. Whether you've seen the, the movie or not, probably everybody's here here has heard the, the classic sort of courtroom exchange between Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and a few good men. Remember Jack Nicholson in sort of his own little way. He's looking at the lawyer played by Tom Cruise. You want answers? I want the truth. And only as Nicholson could say it, you can't handle the truth. Very tense moment. But nothing compared to the intensity of what's happening in these verses. Because the truth walks into a courtroom. Do you understand that? The truth walks in to a courtroom. And we're going to find out how people handle the truth as he walks into this Jewish council. Jesus, in verse 53, is walked from the Garden of Gethsemane, which is what we've left into the Jewish Supreme Court. The name of that is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of 70 different members. We see here it's the high priest who is, a, who is sort of the leader, the chief justice. His name is Caiaphas. And so he's the, he's the person ruling over the 70 that have gathered together. There are chief priests, there's elders, there's scribes, make up the council of 70. In all likelihood, this trial being taken place at night, all 70 were probably not gathered. You only needed 23 to have a quorum, so at least 23 were there. And the Sanhedrin, as you've noticed, is made up of the cream of the crop, just like you might think of your own Supreme Court, state Supreme Court. You're, you're trying to select out the very best, the people who know the most, the seminary graduates, if you will, the the PhDs and the professors, the pastors, the, the highly respected elders, these are the men that have gathered together to judge and to put Jesus on trial. And so as, as I just took note of that, as I just read through that, I wanted to stop. And in like most narrative passages, you, you're really meant to try to put yourself into the scene What's happening? How would you fit into this scene? Where would you be 
in these verses, and I got nervous. Especially as a pastor and as a Christian leader. You see, the the people that are putting Jesus on trial are the religious leaders. The seminary graduates, the pastors, the elders, these leaders, they know their way around the Bible. I mean, if you come to them for a question, bang, they have an answer. They've got it down. And if you were to look at just sort of the outside of their lives, it looks like they're living it out. From the outside, they not only are giving you the answers, they appear to be living out the answers in some way. But something had wormed its way into their lives. Remember, we talked about that with Judas. Something had wormed its way into Judas's life. They looked healthy on the outside, but something was eating at them on the inside. Something was rotting them from the inside out. And Jesus even says, when he looks at the Pharisees at one point, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're real pretty on the outside, but everybody knows in the inside, if you were to to draw back the rock, inside would be rotten flesh. And so something has wormed its way in. For Judas, it was greed. For these religious leaders, it was pride. And let me read to you C.S. Lewis's description of what he calls the great sin in his book, Mere Christianity, which is pride. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Any of us at any moment, may be in this death trap. And just as C.S. Lewis can only do it, he says, luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, that we are better than someone, I think we can be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil himself. It's a terrible thing that the worst of all vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. It's possible to be and look the most religious. But right in the center of our lives, pride has worked its way in. And so before we go any further... Especially as a pastor, I'm looking at myself, I'm looking at the elders in the church, anybody in a leadership position. Before we get any further here, we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing on the test? The the kind of religion that you practice, does it make you feel like you're better than other people? 
then, then you're being acted on by the devil himself. Well, let's resume some observations here. One thing Mark points out right away for us is that the trial doesn't go very well for the Sanhedrin. Really, the Sanhedrin aren't interested in any kind of fair trial. They've already said it here. They really want to put Jesus to death. And so they're just trying to drum something up so that they can say, yeah, he did this or he said that. And that just deserves condemnation, his immediate death. But as they bring people in and they try to accuse them of different things, one of the things is destroying the temple. They can't seem to get two people to agree. And so the way they the way they would do this is they would bring somebody in and he would be separated out from another witness. And they would say, well, can you tell your story? And the person would bear witness to whatever they heard or whatever they saw. And then we'd ask that person to leave and they'd have the second person come in. And if they had a different story in any detail, then immediately their accusations were thrown out. It's a it's a really high standard that they put up for themselves. And what was happening constantly is no matter what issue they were digging up, they'd have to bring in multiple witnesses, at least a couple. And no, no two could could seem to find agreement. And so finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, he sort of takes matters into his own hands. He becomes exasperated, I'd imagine. And so he just decides he's going to confront Jesus right there on the witness stand. I mean, have you no answer to make, he says? These men are testifying against you. Are you not just going to not, are you going to say nothing? And Jesus remains silent. And we don't know why, but at least he's remaining silent because he doesn't have any real accusation so far. There, there hasn't been anything said because two witnesses can't even agree. He doesn't need to say anything to be acquitted. But Caiaphas is infuriated by his silence. And then we have here the most dramatic Turning point in any trial, the great what I'm calling the great reversal. Verse 61, Caiaphas asks one more question. And it is a question that Jesus thinks is worth answering. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed or the son of God is another way to say that. See, what Mark wants us to see right here, and it's critical that we do see it, is that Jesus' answer to this question is so massive, is so comprehensive, it throws the whole court into chaos. Do you notice that? What Jesus says has a massive impact on the people that are around. You notice that if you've ever watched somebody read a letter and you're not reading it, but you're just reading their face as they read the letter or somebody's on the phone and you don't know what's being said, but you can tell something great's being said or something disturbing is disturbing is being said just by watching the face of the person that's hearing the information. Well, if you were to look at the expressions, not of Jesus, but just looking at the expressions of the members of the Sanhedrin. 
the, the chief justice tears his robes. They, they all condemn Jesus to die. They begin to spit on him and punch him in the face. The, the courtroom is out of order. It just gets upset and turned over immediately. So, you know, whatever Jesus just said, it was massive. And so let's look back and see what it is that Jesus does say to Caiaphas's question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you are you the anointed one in the Old Testament? It's saying this person is going to come. But what had happened by the time we'd gotten to this point in history is that all the Jewish people really thought that the Messiah was going to be some great military or political leader. Somebody who was going to come in and sort of overturn what was being done in Israel. And what was being done in Israel is that the Romans had come in and they were looking for this great political power, this great charismatic leader who's going to turn over the Roman government and establish a Jewish nation again. You know, it's so ingrained in the Jewish people that even after Jesus has died, his disciples have seen him again, resurrected. Remember this in Acts chapter one. And they themselves, the disciples say, is this the time that you're going to restore Israel? Even the closest people couldn't see it. Well, if Jesus had claimed this messianic title, that probably just by itself would have been big enough to have him killed. But that wasn't really the information that was making the people Chaotic. It's the additional information that Jesus provides. Let's look at verse 62. He says, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm much more than you could have ever imagined. And then very shrewdly, he quotes an Old Testament passage. See, you've got all the scholars around and they know all about the Old Testament. And he draws their attention back to one very particular Old Testament passage that everybody in the room would have understood. And he goes back to Daniel chapter seven. And let's go back there with him. And he says, I am the son of man and you will see me seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, when we go back to Daniel chapter seven, what we're going to see here in the first few verses is Daniel has this unusual dream. And without going into a lot of explanation, out of the, this, this sea that's being disturbed by the winds of heaven come four different beasts. And one is more terrifying than the other. The one that proceeds gets sort of eaten up or destroyed by the one that comes after it. Each, each beast that comes out of the sea represents a kingdom, a, a human dominion of some kind. Till finally, this most terrifying beast that really doesn't have a description. It just has this sort of unusual uh, teeth. It's the most terrifying of them all. Finally, at the end of all these human kingdoms in Daniel's vision, you see, breaks away from that in verse nine. And at the end of all these human kingdoms is the ancient of days. And he has this description But notice what's happening here. The end of verse 10. The court sat in judgment and books were open. 
So Jesus, on trial, takes all the Jewish leaders back to another courtroom scene. And this is a courtroom scene where God is the judge. And all of human, all of the human kingdoms, they are the ones that are on trial. And then in verse 13, before the judgment begins. On the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What Jesus had just referred to himself as. And he came to the age of, of days. And was presented before him. And notice the things that were given to the Son of Man. Dominion, glory, kingdoms. All peoples, all nations, all languages are going to serve him. He's going to be in a kingdom that lasts forever. So when Jesus goes back to Daniel chapter 7 to describe himself. He he says something so massive that it's hard even for us to get our minds wrapped around. Without blinking an eye, Jesus says, I am the judge of the entire world. He turns the tables on the Sanhedrin. He tells the religious men who are acting like judges that he's not the one on trial here. They're on trial. Because one day they will see him seated, a place of judgment, and he is the ultimate ruler. He is the ultimate king. Jesus is not in the dock. They're in the dock. Jesus doesn't have to answer questions. They have to answer questions. And I think what we need to really hear here is that Jesus is trying to help the Sanhedrin. He's trying to help the rest of the world. To see is it's not what you make of Jesus that matters. It's not what you make of Jesus that matters. What matters is what he makes of you. What really matters in this world is what Jesus Christ makes of you. It's not what you make of Jesus because you're not at the center. What really matters is what Jesus makes of you. What really matters is not your belief in Jesus, but his belief in you. When you get to heaven, are you getting there resting on your own belief? No. You're resting on Jesus's belief in you. You're trusting that he's going to keep his promises. You're trusting that he's going to be faithful. You're trusting that he's going to keep you to the very end. That's what you're really trusting in. It's not the quality of your commitment to Jesus that counts. It's the quality of his commitment to you that counts. And so what Jesus is saying here in this day to the Sanhedrin, what he's saying here To us is that everything that has been created must answer to him and to him alone. And when the Sanhedrin realized this and trust me, and you probably know this, this information as is as explosive today in America 
as it was 2,000 years ago. When Jesus Christ stands up in front of the smartest people on the planet, the most religious people on the planet, and says to those people, I am the only way to God the Father Almighty. I am the judge of everything that has ever been created. The people explode and say, it can't be. And if you say that today, it's as explosive today as it was 2,000 years ago. So I think there's some possible and impossible verdicts here. We're observing a trial. And I think one of the possible verdicts is when you see that Jesus is claiming divinity, he is claiming to be the exclusive judge over all of the world. I think there's at least two possible verdicts. One is what the Pharisees have done. You can say absolutely no way. There's no way that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He isn't God with skin on. He isn't the ultimate judge of the universe. That's impossible. There's got to be multiple ways to God. There's got to be some other thing. It couldn't possibly be him. If it's him, it's not him alone. And so you would just reject Jesus out of hand, which is what the Pharisees did. That's a reasonable and rational verdict. It's not the verdict that I've concluded, but you could come to a conclusion and just say, I think Jesus is a lunatic. Nobody should claim that for themselves. And you would just reject Jesus out of hand. Another possible verdict. The verdict that I have concluded the verdict that many of you all have concluded is that he was who he said he was. Jesus Christ is God with skin on. And when you see him, you've seen the Father. And what's the most amazing thing is the judge, the judge of the whole universe, came down to do what? What did the judge of the whole universe come down to do? To be judged. He stood in the dock. He didn't just say something and run away. He said, no, I'm going to stay in the dock for Paul Phillips because he really does deserve to be condemned. The judge of the whole universe substituted himself for me. And so that now he looks on him, it says in the song, and pardons me. That's the gospel. The judge of the whole universe who could do whatever he wants comes down and says, I'll be judged for my people. So I think those are two possible verdicts. Those are rational verdicts in my mind that you could just say it's not possible. You throw your hands up in the air like the Sanhedrin and say, no way. 
Or you could bow down at Jesus' feet and say he's the Savior. But I think there's one impossible verdict. And the reason I bring it up is because it's the most proclaimed verdict, I think. If you just sort of go out there and take a poll, you're going to get this verdict. And I think it's the one that you can't ever have. And that is that Jesus was just some kind of moral teacher. A great moral teacher would not stand up and proclaim to be the judge of the whole world. And say, if you don't follow me, then you're going to go to hell. That wouldn't be a great moral teacher to lead millions and billions of people astray. You can't say that and be rational. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, and I printed it on the front of your bulletin. I think this he does such a great job. In the uh, second half of the, this quote here. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of a man. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. You see that right here in the text. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There's no trace of people expressing mild approval. Nobody comes to Jesus and says, that's nice. I like that. Jesus Christ is either who he said he was, or he's a lunatic or a liar. There are no other possible verdicts. So we've been sitting in a courtroom today. God is in the dock. The gospel is that the judge has come to be judged for you. So that when Jesus Christ comes again to exercise his power and his authority over all of creation. When God looks at us, he's going to see Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you will get in the dock. And you'll have to stand on your own merits. And I think you know, and if you don't, the Bible's very clear about it. No one can stand. There is not one righteous. No, not one. What's your verdict? If he is who he says he is, he's worthy of your complete adoration. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to this particular moment that some somebody here, maybe several people need to really wrestle through their verdict.
treating you as just some great moral teacher, just picking and choosing what they might like to live by. Still being the judge of their own lives. Maybe somebody here who's rejected you out of hand. Pray that they would see that you have come to take their judgment. That today they don't need to stand condemned. For those of us who have said we we see Jesus. May our whole lives reflect the reality. Of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for many ways to worship. One of them is the giving of what you've given to us. It's in in no way earns anything. We could not earn any more love than you have already displayed. It helps us understand that all all things come from you. You are the creator, you are the sustainer and you are the judge. And you will exercise dominion over everything that has its existence here. Pray that we would be generous givers because of the generosity that you have displayed on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.